Hey, welcome to another episode of the Go With John Show. Today, we just wrapped up a conversation with Doug Kay, and man, he wears a lot of hats. It is uh, literally not possible for me to run through the list of all of the uh, different committees and boards and things that he sits on. But today, we're going to talk to Doug about his work on the Fairfax County Police Civilian Review Panel. And he uh, is also going to chat with us about what it's like to be an attorney and how he became a Naval JAG officer and an attorney. Really interesting stories. I hope you enjoy listening as much as we enjoyed uh, chatting with Doug Kay. So here we go. All right, so welcome to uh, another episode of the Go With John Show. We're here with uh, Doug Kay today. Doug, thanks for coming in. Uh, so nice to be here. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. So, Doug, you are an attorney. I am. And you are with the law firm of? Offit Kerman. Excellent. And uh, you also are a golfer. I am a golfer. And you also are a former Naval JAG officer. I am. Okay. And you're also, because I want to try to get as much in today sure. as we can, you are the, are you the chair of the civilian review panel for Fairfax County? Uh, tell us about that briefly. Yeah. So um, I, I'm a former chair. Okay. Uh, there's only one chair at a time. Uh, there are up to nine members of the Fairfax County civilian review panel. Okay. And, um, and what do they do? Because that's a really, that's a really relevant topic today. It is. Uh, yeah. It's become, it became extraordinarily relevant, obviously, with uh, George, George Floyd's murder. Right. Uh, that happened about a year ago. Um, and so what do we do? What we do is we um, do two things primarily. Uh, we, um, we review citizen complaints about police behavior. Right. So that's one thing. And the other thing that we do a little bit less of um, because our review of the citizen complaints takes up most of our time. Right. The other thing that we can do is we can hold public meetings and ask for input from um, the, the populate from from our community. Right. And ask community members to tell us what's on their mind and what things are concerning them about the police department mm -hmm. and what people do. Uh, forget, I think, sometimes, and I'm, re I'm reminded of whenever I go and I serve in this panel, is that the police work for us. Right. And we live in a de democratic system, and so they work for us, and we should, and we do, have input into how we're policed as right. a community. Yes. And so, so our, our function is to review complaints, individual mm -hmm. complaints. Along the way, we spot... Um, problems with police department policies and we point out those problems at least that we think are problems right and the nine of us ostensibly speak for the entire community yes. as best we can yes. um, through our own lens wonderful so how what made you want to get involved in that so um, uh, the the beginning of it really started when I was um, very active in my the local um, Bar Association, which is just a, a group of lawyers that, that meet together and associate and, and work on different things. And I was the president of the Bar Association. Right. And Sharon Bulova was the chairman of the Board of Supervisors, and she sent a letter to the Bar Association and said, we would like a lawyer to be a member of, of a commission that I'm, we're standing up to take a look at police practices and behavior. What year was that about? So that was probably, I want to say, seven years ago okay. or so. And I was the president. Okay. And the executive director said, hey, we got this letter from Sharon Bulova. We should talk about it at our next meeting. Mm -hmm. Maybe somebody on the board would like to serve on it. And I said, I know who wants to serve in that commission. Mm -hmm. I want to serve in that commission. Okay. And So re what, what was your motivation? Yeah. So... My motivation was it looked extremely interesting. Yeah. The commission was set up in the wake of John Gear being killed um, by on his front doorstep by a Fairfax County police officer in Springfield. That. Yes, and, it, and there was a lot of um, controversy yeah. over how the police department, um, not so much the behavior of the officer, which was tragic, and uh, he was eventually pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter. Mm -hmm. But it was the way that the department and and the county attorney handled 
the fallout from it. Mm-hmm. And they resisted um, news, news outlets and, um, oh, by the way, uh, John Gere's family, who, were filed, who filed a wrongful death action, mm-hmm. they re- and they resisted the prosecutor, right. Ray Morrow, um, my old boss, right. um, in his efforts to try to investigate and decide whether or not to prosecute that case. Right. So I was fascinated with the whole thing. Um, I had been um, a prosecutor in Fairfax, so I had worked closely with the police department in that capacity. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was still taking criminal defense cases, so I was interested in it from that angle. My partner, Ed Nuttall, at the time was um, the general counsel for the Fairfax County Police Union. Okay. And I used to assist him when occasionally officers would um, get in trouble with the department. But most significantly, what I assisted him with was um, whenever there was an officer-involved shooting, that, in, that resulted in a death mm-hmm. of, of a community member. Um, the, if, that, if that police officer was a member of the union, he was entitled to a union attorney. Mm-hmm. Uh, one summer, Ed went on vacation two separate weeks, and there were two officer-involved shootings in one summer that I had to go out at 4 in the morning and sit there side-by-side side with the officer right. and protect his rights. Right. And so... All of these things, I was like, this is a really interesting topic to me. I want to get more involved in my community. Yeah. I think that I can actually give, have something to offer here. Yeah, that's so amazing. I, so I did it. You know, I, I think that we all want to give back to the community, or a lot of us do. Right. But it's like, where and how? Like, yeah. where, so I saw the opportunity, and I jumped in. Nice. So I got on this commission. And that's not the end of the story. But right. so the commission met for a, you know, six months and yeah. made... 132 recommendations, one of which was we should stand up a police civilian review panel. Mm-hmm. So they, that recommendation was accepted, and then they asked for applications for the inaugural panel, mm-hmm. and I sent in a resume and was put on the inaugural panel. Amazing. That's, That's fantastic. Yeah. That's uh... – It was just it – was, it was, you know, I, I will say that it's one of um, – you know, one of the great honors of my life to be able to do this. Right. Um, and, um, and, I, and I feel like that it's meaningful. I had no idea mm-hmm. that, you know, George Floyd would be murdered five years later. Right. <laughs> and it would become so, so much more important. Right. Um, and it, it, but it makes it even more valuable. Yeah. So the so what, what I've heard is that so you first had the opportunity to sit by the side of an officer right after he was involved in a shooting. So that's really the first step, right, in the process for for your yes. uh, uh, arriving at this desire to to be part of this. Yeah. So you viscerally understand yeah. uh, what and, – and you probably had to interview them, right, and you had to capture data mm-hmm. and what happened and yep. did you get into their personal emotions, like what were you feeling or oh – I mean, gosh. you got yeah. into everything, right? And you, yeah, did, you know, now there, there were two different police officers, and I'll leave their names out of it. Sure. And honestly, I can, I'm not sure that I remember their names. I right. know them, I know their faces, and, and if I heard their names, I would remember in an instant. And I, and I occasionally see the one officer. Um, the one officer that I remember specifically was, you know, a middle aged man, 42 years old, had yeah. a wife and children at home. Uh huh. Um, and I had known him when I was a prosecutor. And, and the prosecutors, you know, I think, um, like you see on, depicted on TV sometimes, they develop relationships with certain police officers. Mm-hmm. It's sort of mm-hmm. a natural thing to do. And I had developed a relationship with this guy. And then lo and behold, you know, 10 years later, I'm not a prosecutor anymore, haven't been for 10 years. Yeah. You know, I'm called to the scene, yeah. you know, not to the scene, to the station house right. for this interview. And there's... The officer, John, or whatever yeah. his name was, and yeah. Um, and and yeah, I mean, it was incredibly emotional for him. Yeah, yeah. Now, was it uh, w- was that was that particular shooting? Um, what was the situation behind? Sure. It? Yeah, I mean, it, good question. Yeah. Um, you know, th- there are. I think that we, uh, um, the media reports um, most vociferously about the bad shoots. Sure. Um, yeah. Sadly, officers have to use their weapons for self-defense or in defense of others with, um, with too great a frequency, I, would, mm-hmm. I, would, I think we all would agree. 
Um, but the vast majority of those are justifiable. Right. And in this case, the, um, <clears throat> the APB or the All Points Bulletin went out that there was a, a man who had, who had walked out of a, some kind of a group home where, mm-hmm. where emotionally disturbed um, people live. And mm-hmm. he was wielding a knife and he was walking down. It was right in front of Springfield Mall, like Commerce Avenue. I think it's in front of Springfield Mall. Yeah. And, um, and the officer was like, huh, you know, you don't, you don't know what you're going to get that day. You might right. get a jaywalker or you might get, you know, uh, a parking violation. You might get a running a red light and, you know, man on the loose with a knife. Right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, Not and so, funny, but yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, no. uh, so yeah. he confronted this guy, but that's the life of, of an officer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he confronted this guy and the guy didn't put down the knife and he, and he had to fire shots, and, yeah. and, the, and the gentleman passed away very, very tragically and sadly. Um, but I've always thought um, th- th- this story doesn't come up when I'm in, when I'm sitting um, um, in the police review panel, right? And and I and I would venture to say that sometimes I think the police uh, they don't know that history about me, right? And they assume that I have an agenda. That's anti-police. Yes, I don't. Right. Um, right. I, I try to be as neutral as I possibly can, and um, but I do have that background. Yeah. Where I can sympathize with a police officer. I can also sympathize with criminal defendants who I've represented right. a lot of. Right. And I know it's, there are good cops. I know there are bad cops, and um, and I know there are, there's good policing and bad policing and good police policy. And now I've seen some bad police policy. Right. So, so you know, I, I guess kind of what I was wondering mm-hmm. is, you know, he was he was very upset over the shooting. Yes. It was even it was a justifiable uh, shooting. Yes. But it doesn't make it any better for the police officer in general. I would think that that no. if you uh, have to fire your weapon, it's not a good day. Yeah, my, in my experience, the police officers are usually very proud of the fact that they've never fired their, their, their weapon. Mm-hmm. And most of them that you would go out and talk to, they would tell you that the only time they've discharged it is to, is to euthanize a deer on the side of Braddock right. Road or right. something like that. Right. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. Uh, um, and, they, and, they, and they take great pride in that. You know? And I think really good policing, um, if you're really fortunate, you don't get a weird situation like that fella did that one night I described. Exactly. Um, you know, results in not having to deploy a, your user weapon. Right. So. so you're on the panel. Yeah. And you're, you're, in a sense, you're representing the citizens of Fairfax County. I do my best. And you have, yeah, I, I, would, I would imagine you do very well. I know you very well. I can't imagine you would not do very well uh, with that. But you Thank have you. a, uh, so, so you have a lot of compassion for the uh, police officer, but you also have a lot of uh, um, desire, I think, to get the policies right. So a, a big part of what you do, I guess, I'm assuming, and you can tell me, is you're focused on their policies and procedures and their practices. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. It's really interesting because Nick and I talk about this all the time. Um, and and we, you know, we have policies and procedures in our organization. And I've got the same rules and procedures for everybody that works here. If you, if somebody comes to me, which happens frequently, and wants an exception to the to the policy or the rule, I generally say, well, let's reassess this rule or this policy and see if we should change the policy. But I don't really make exceptions, mm-hmm. right? So then, you know, we will we'll have a discussion within our within our group, and we'll decide whether or not this policy is a good policy, and should we reevaluate it. So I can imagine you're probably doing things like that. On a, on a much heavier level. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that um, the, the, the um, more clear your policies and procedures are, uh, the easier it is for the police officers to know what to do when they're confronted with a particular situation. Yeah. So I, I think that is, I think to me, that is the most important conversation that should be happening today is do we have the right policies and procedures in place? And uh, how do you manage that? Because if we have the right policies and procedures in place and officers have to fire their weapon uh, or restrain a suspect following procedure and something tragic happens, then that 
police officer was doing his job. Mm -hmm. uh, conversely, if you have a situation like you had with George Floyd, I think justice was served. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you're 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 on a really uh, fine line in today's world. So what is your what are your emotions every day when you go to work and you have to deal with this now when really it's probably the foremost topic on our society's mind, I think. It seems to be to me anyway. Well, you know, so fortunately we take um, – the, the way that we investigate police policies is not by opening up the, um, the general orders book, which is, by the way, like, a, like at least one – a three ring binder that's four inches deep and like super thick and really yeah. dense. And I would never be able to get through it. Mm -hmm. I just wouldn't, I don't think that I could get through it if I, if I tried rather what we do is we deal with the complaints sort of one by one by one. Right. And each complaint brings in a different, uh, you know, uh, impacts different policies. And I will tell you that most of the time, most of our reviews of these complaints have been pretty, um, ordinary. Yeah. And there really hasn't been anything all that racy or exciting that comes out of them. Right. And, um, and I should point out. So give us an example. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll give you, I'll give you an example, um, of one that, that, that I'm working on right now. Mm -hmm. Um, there is a policy, um, it's in the general order that states that when police officers go respond to a complaint of domestic violence, that they'll identify themselves, mm -hmm. explain why they're there, and insist on seeing the, the occupants of the home, mm -hmm. all right? And I'm probably getting that, not getting that exactly right. Sure. Um, there was a, a call to service, and this is a complaint that we just reviewed um, for a second time uh, at our last meeting, which was, uh, the first, it's always the first Thursday of every month, mm -hmm. seven o'clock and anybody can appear and, mm -hmm. and, and watch and watch our proceedings. But so the last one was, would have been the, the, uh, first, first, uh, Thursday in April, we reviewed a, a case where there was a complaint made at four in the morning that there was banging on the walls and two people were fighting in the apartment next door. Mm -hmm. Please come right away. What's your name, sir? I, I don't want to give my name because they know me and I don't want to, I don't want any fallout. I want to stay neutral. Okay, fine. So the police go to the, uh, go to, you know, one, two, three, um, you know, Baker Avenue yeah. and they get there and, and there's gotta be two officers. And when they get there, they, loud enough so that anybody in the apartment, no matter where they were, would be able to hear. Right. After four minutes of knocking, there was no response. Police went back to their cars. Mm -hmm. The same guy calls back and mm -hmm. says, they're at it again. I know you guys are just here, but they're at it again. Mm -hmm. Cops come back to the scene. Well, about a minute after the second call from the anonymous caller, the lady and her sister who lived in the apartment had been sound asleep. There had been no domestic disturbance at all. Mm -hmm. Call 911 and say there's somebody pounding on my door. Oh, my goodness. And I'm at 1234 Baker Avenue. Right. And the dispatcher's like, well, that's the police. Is right. there, everybody expects, just like you did, that there was a horrible domestic yes. assault going on. Right? Yes. Until yes. I announced to you that there wasn't. Right. So the complaint is by the ladies who were in there because the police officers didn't identify themselves. Oh. Right. Yeah. Now, the reason that the investigation revealed that the reason that they didn't identify themselves is because they didn't their training suggested it wasn't safe to stand in the funnel of death, which is right, the, right by the front door. <laughs> right. And, and knock. Right. And say Fairfax County Police open up. Yes. In case there's somebody dangerous behind the door. So yeah. now what we've identified and and, and uh, m m you know, if you were to go and listen to the recording, you would see that I was pretty stern with the police officers. My, my beef is not with the, with the uniformed officer at, right. the, at the scene at all. Sure. You know, and, I, and I'm not there, to, I'm not here to, to second guess tactics of the police department. Right. But we have a stated policy that says X and we have 
I believe, the investigation revealed conduct that, that where the officers did why. Right. So now we've identified a policy that we need to try to get sorted out. Exactly. And and what and, and I and, and we need to as a as a civilian review panel, in my view, find out what training is being done for the officers and, and determine whether we think that it, that it, it's that it's right and mm-hmm. report that out and we we, re, we make our reports and I'm writing the report right now for this. It's amazing. So that's the kind of thing yeah. that we do. I mean, it's re- I mean, it's really cool, and I think it's really valuable. And I and I I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> yeah, I didn't <laughs> so, either. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> but it's but it's amazing, and that's exactly the way it should work because mm-hmm. the work you're doing right now is uh, going to potentially avoid uh, a tragic event in the future. Because if you can get that policy right, it might stop bullets from coming right. through a door. You know, and this will force, <clears throat> I hope, and I'm sure, because the, the you know, the, the this is a very, very professional police department. Absolutely. Very smart people. Completely agree um, with you. Yeah. And, and they, they, they endeavor to get it right. They'll, I'm sure they will look at what they're doing in Houston and what they're doing in, yeah. in Chicago and what they're doing in other places where, where they, you know, um, of course, police are responding to scenes of domestic assault and find out exactly what the best policy is. What's the safest yeah. for the people on the other side of the door and the safest for the for the men and women in blue? Right. Um, right. And we have to figure that out. And, you know, obviously there's no perfect answer. Yeah. But there ought to be a policy that the police officers in the line can rely on and that and that our citizens think is right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's 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 ironic because we talk a lot about business on this uh, podcast and we talk a lot about real estate and building houses. And it's it's I'm, I'm really glad we can have this conversation today, but it all boils down to human interaction. And when you have humans coming together, having interactions, no two interactions are ever the same. And in something like a real estate transaction and something like policing, you know, it's really hard to have a black and white policy that is going to uh, work in every situation. And I can see why the ladies were terrified. I could also see why somebody <laughs> might, you, you, you know, want to take action against whoever's on the outside of that door, either immediately or through your panel, right? right? Because if somebody's banging on my door at four in the morning. Well, here's the other piece of it that's yeah. interesting. There's a, a, a new phenomenon I don't know how new it is, but there's a phenomenon that's that's gaining popularity, sadly, called swatting. Yeah. Do you know what swatting is? Tell me. Swatting is where you call the police and say, "There's a man with a bomb yes. in in Baker Avenue, you know, one, two, three, and, yeah. and SWAT comes in and gotcha. drags a guy yeah. out, and you know, all kinds of bad things can happen. Right. Right. And so, one of the side piece sideshows of this to me is. I think the anonymous caller in this case don't know. Yeah. I mean, he might have been given the wrong address. Right. And there might have been a hellacious domestic violence scene going on across the street. He yeah. may have given the wrong address. Yeah. Or he might have not had taken issue with the um, occupants. With the occupants who, yeah. who you know, were of a certain ethnicity that maybe he wasn't yeah. and didn't like them or whatever. I don't even right. know what. You never know. And yeah. and there is a policy, believe it or not, that, that they don't. Um, the police don't like to um, go after anonymous callers because they want people to complain about crime. Right. But I think that what I'm interested in, uh, you know, and I, I will study it and we'll talk to the police department, is once you've established that this is, may not be an anonymous caller, it may be a swatting incident. Yeah. Um, you know, at what point do you have an obligation to investigate that as a crime and the crime being false police report? Yeah. That, that endangered, you know, put these ladies out, put these police officers had to get investigated. Right. Twice. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's like, holy cow, you know. Yeah. Um, so that'll be another little wrinkle. So we just, the, the neat thing about what we do is rather than comb through dense material, mm-hmm. we just, we handle each case. Yeah. And, and the nine of us get together and we talk about, well, you know, here's an issue, here's an issue. And most of the time, the police say, that's not really an issue. Here's why. And we say, okay. Right. Um, but right. every now and then, we sink our teeth into something, and, and, and we, I think we, we affect change, and I think that we affect it in a positive way. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's so fantastic. I feel good about it. Well, I'm really glad you do. I'm, 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 I'm glad you're uh, on the panel. That's wonderful. 
So I think at the at the highest level, um, the the uh, you know the police are generally here to serve. They work for us, mm-hmm. and we I think ninety nine point nine percent of them are all great citizens and great cops. And uh, the work that you guys are doing will certainly I think uh, be very beneficial to the community. Is beneficial to the community, you know. Yeah. So I'm glad you're doing that. Well, and I, and I will say that um, to his credit, um, Chief Rossler, who just recently mm-hmm. retired, was supportive of our um, of the civilian review panel from the start. Yeah, um, and um, and the and the police department, you know, has given us good people to work with, good partners. Right, um, and they continue to work with us, and I and I think that that through that, you know, collaboration, um, it'll will just get better and better. Yeah. So, do they see you as an adversary, the police? Uh, you know, so when you say the police, that's like uh, I know. 20, that's like two thousand people. So, right, right. So, but 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 your question is a good question. Right. All the same. Yeah. Um, I would say that, um, you know, um, the command staff mm-hmm. structure that and, and the Internal Affairs Bureau in particular. Right. I don't think necessarily see us as adversaries. Um, I think they see us as um, as 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 a group that is, you know, performing its oversight function that's right. been assigned to it by the government. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. they're. They're living with it. Yeah. And there are times when we disagree, and that's, that's healthy. I it think. is, actually, yeah. But, but when you say the police, there's also the other side of the police department, which is sort of the rank and file. Mm-hmm. The rank and file officer um, is – so we just did a six-year review. Um, no, we did a four-year review, excuse me, Yeah. Uh, for, the, for the panel. One of the things that we identified is, is as a potential area of growth for us or a potential area of improvement – is to help the rank and file police officers understand that we're not, you know, we don't have, they shouldn't see us as adversaries. Right. Um, and that's, that's um, a challenge that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and we're going to have to work on that. And yeah. we're going to reach out to some of the, um, you know, union. Um, there's a Friends of Police. There's a union. There's um, a couple of other organizations, associations of officers, right. who who meet, and we're going to try to get to know them and go out and tell them what we do and what our job is. Good idea. And try to disabuse them, hopefully, of maybe whatever preconceived notions they have about us right, and what our right. role is. Yeah, locker it, room chatter, right? Right. <laughs> you know, but by the same token, um, there are um, groups that come to our meetings. Um, for example, Black Lives Matters comes to our meetings frequently, right. and a lot of them are convinced we don't do enough, or yeah. that we're not strong enough, we, we don't have enough responsibility, we don't have enough ability to affect the change that they would like to see. Right. So we're kind of caught in the middle, right? Yeah. Um, a, a, um, and maybe unpopular with, with the two groups that, that maybe are adversarial, um, and, and that's just probably a fact of life that'll never yeah. change. Yeah. But, um, that's unfortunate. Well, mm-hmm. you know, maybe as your role, your panel can bring people together, which, uh, could sometimes be a very long journey. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. Can be. Well, it's fantastic. All right. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break, Doug. That is awesome, uh, to hear what you're doing there. And thank you for doing that. That's uh, fantastic service and well needed, uh, today. When we come back, let's talk about uh, your experience as a a Navy JAG officer. Love to do it. Great. Thanks. So, uh, all right, we're back with Doug Kay and uh, great segment. Uh, Really enjoyed hearing about your uh, volunteer work. That's fantastic and well needed, of course. So let's talk about uh, your time as a Navy JAG officer. So what is what is it? What does a Navy JAG officer do? Well, a Navy JAG officer is um, the, the Navy has a number of different staff corps components, right? That's that help um, support the warfighting uh, arm of the Navy, which is the part that everybody thinks about. The right. guys who drive around the ships and fly the planes mm-hmm. and drive the mm-hmm. submarines. Um, there are, you know, there are medical officers. There are doctors. There are dentists. Yeah. Uh, medical service officers. There are supply officers. And there are JAG officers, and JAG, JAG officers, JAG stands is short for Judge Advocate General, mm-hmm. and um, the top of the food chain for 
the for the JAG Corps is the Judge Advocate General of the Navy, mm-hmm. who's a three-star admiral. Okay. And there are, um, depending on, on what year it is, there's sometimes uh, somewhere between 500 and 700 lawyers mm-hmm. in the Navy. The mm-hmm. Navy has, you know, anywhere between 300,000 and half a million active duty people that are in it, um, exclusive of reservists. Mm-hmm. And the JAG Corps does a number of functions. Um, there are basically two, com- two sides of it. Um, there's a side that um, where lawyers go out and they assist a command and mm-hmm. serve as like a general counsel for a commander. Okay. And a commander might be in charge of, you know, 50 or 100,000 sailors. Right. So you're their, you're their lawyer. <laughs> right. So, yeah. uh, you know, and depending on your rank, that tells you how, how big a company essentially you, you are the general counsel of. Okay. Right. Yeah. So if you're a captain, which is, a, you know, the sixth highest officer uh, in the officer corps of the Navy, mm-hmm. um, equivalent to an army colonel, um, you might be um, advising the commander in chief of the Pacific Naval Forces. Mm-hmm. If you're a um, a lieutenant, which is the equivalent of like a of a uh, army captain, O three mm-hmm. third third highest officer, you might be advising um, oh like a um, an air station, mm-hmm. an air station commander who might have eight thousand people, active duty people, in right. services. Right, right. So that's one half of the JAG Corps, roughly. Mm-hmm. The other half of the JAG Corps is probably what you're more familiar with, and that's if you've ever saw the movie A Few Good Men, yes, um, where they do prosecutions and defense of service members, mm-hmm. um, and they also, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which mm-hmm. is the UCMJ, and then they also provide legal assistance, and they do some claims work and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, so if you're so as a JAG officer on the other side, so are you both a prosecutor and a defense attorney? Could you do you wear both hats in different cases or are you primarily defending or primarily prosecuting? How does that lay out? So uh, I think that's a good question because it's really interesting to me. OK, um, <laughs> so when I was in the Navy um, and I was in the Navy active duty at a service station from 1993 to 1996, mm-hmm. they had what were called NILSOs or Navy Legal Service Officer Offices. Right. Okay, um, and you know a lot of acronyms in the Navy. They love yeah. their acronyms. And so I was uh, my first duty station was Naval Air Station Whidbey Island, mm-hmm. and I went to a to um, a Navy Legal Service Office detachment at Whidbey Island, and my first job was as a defense attorney, mm-hmm. and. Um, and the, when I, I was there for three years, and I had three posts, I was a defense attorney, and then I was what's called a legal assistance officer, and then mm-hmm. I was a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, when I was cycling out of my defense work and crossing over to take on prosecution cases, mm-hmm. there were times when I hadn't finished up all of my defense cases before my I was supposed to serve as a prosecutor. And so the judge would call a case, and, and I would be sitting there next to um, Airman Schmuckatelli. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and my, my buddy Jerry was the prosecutor. Yeah. And then, um, and then we'd get done with that case. And the judge would call the next case. And we would switch, literally switch tables. Yeah. <laughs> and he would be defending, uh, you know, Airman, uh, you know, uh, Sconce or whatever. Yeah. And I would be prosecuting Airman Sconce. Yeah. And, um, and, and we didn't see that as any real problem. Because yeah, I wouldn't see it as a problem. Yeah, as as an as an attorney, um, I think we pride ourselves on being able to be advocates for for any cause, right? right? That we're that we're hired to do, right? Um, I yeah. certainly, in my current job, I'm a do commercial litigation now. Mm-hmm. It's if if a landlord calls me and he wants to evict his um, commercial tenant at you know over in Tyson's Corner. Because that tenant hasn't paid its rent, I'll, I'll represent that landlord. Right. On the other side of the of the coin, if that if that tenant had called me first and said, "Hey, Doug, you won't believe what this landlord's doing to me. Right. I'm not paying my rent because you know he isn't giving me electricity. Yeah. I would be just happy to represent that that, sure. that tenant. It's the it's the it's the set of facts. You're right. Si- you're right. You're signing up to take ownership and represent the set yeah. of facts on either side. Yeah. So I I you know we all saw that's how we. We, 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 we saw it back in the 90s. Well, shortly after I left the Navy, they have switched it. So now um, 
as I understand it, because yeah. I haven't served under this rubric, but I've yeah. talked to people who have. They have um, they have commands that are only defense attorneys, and they mm -hmm. have commands that are only prosecutors, and you you serve in one or the other command, and you know you report to a, a single commander who's in charge of all the defense attorneys, or the single commander is in charge yeah. of all the prosecutors. So I would think that you would be a better defense attorney and a better prosecutor if you have worked uh, both sides of the fence, uh, so to speak. I, I think that you are. Um, I think that, I, I agree. I think having done both makes you more skilled at, um, at both because you, you learn little tricks um, mm -hmm. that you can do, little things that work. Um, mm -hmm. You can also, I think it helps any lawyer in any case um, to be able to understand where the other side is coming from. Right, exactly. When you're representing you know, your client. Exactly. Yeah, so you almost, and, and, and then you'll also know what tricks they're going to be trying to use right. against you, right? Now, I will say yeah. that oh, in, in my, my journey as an attorney over 25 years, um, I've come to appreciate that some people, I think, are more naturally inclined to be defense attorneys, and some people mm -hmm. are more naturally inclined to be prosecutors. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I found myself, um, hopefully my past criminal defendant clients won't be listening to your segment, but <laughs> I think I was a better natural prosecutor. I'm, I'm less naturally suspicious yeah. of authority or of the government than some of my colleagues who are really good criminal defense attorneys who are just sort of naturally suspicious, like, oh, yeah. that person's lying. And I'm yeah. like, really? You think so? <laughs> you know? So anyway, I just give you that observation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how did you, so how did you become, tell me the story about how you became a JAG. All right. Um, you want the long version or the sure. short version? Sure. Let's, let's have the long version. Right. So yeah. the long version. Because I haven't heard takes, it yet. So yeah, I, sure. I, yeah. The long version starts in college. Okay. I went to Virginia Tech mm -hmm. and was a history major. And my senior year, all my buddies, you know, Virginia Tech is an excellent engineering school, a, a top-notch business school. It's not necessarily known for its history department. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was a senior, there were job fairs for the engineers. There were job fairs for the business students. No job fairs for the history majors. And I was wondering what the heck I was going to do when I graduated. Right. When I, right. Got a, I got a letter in the mail from the Navy. Okay. I was a senior in college. Yeah. And Now, did they um, send everybody a letter, or was this specific for you because you were a history major? I, mean, I, have, I have no idea how the recruiter found me, but gotcha. he did. I'm, just glad, I'm glad he did because okay. it it's part of my journey. Yeah. And so um, when I, the recruiter was out of, I think that the letter may have gone to my home address, which is back here in Northern Virginia in mm -hmm. Fairfax. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I met the recruiter um, at some Navy base somewhere, and he was a, a, a tall, um, you know, um, handsome guy with uh, his khakis, and he had mm -hmm. the gold wings. He was mm -hmm. a pilot. Mm -hmm. And so I come in, I sit down across from him, and he says, uh, so... Um, interested in the Navy, you want to be a pilot? And I was like, not really, you know, <laughs> no, not really. You know, some people have always wanted to be a pilot. Right. And I had a friend who was going to be in the Air Force. And I'm like, yeah. no, nah, I'm like, what else do you got? And he goes, well, we have um, these guys who ride in the back of the planes. They're called Rios, mm -hmm. radar intercept operators. You want to do that? I'm like, that eh, doesn't really sound that great either. Right. And I said, what else do you have? And he goes, um, well, we have naval intelligence. I said, sign me up. Yeah. That's what I want. And I was, a, I was, a, I was fascinated with like uh, spy novels. Right. And I thought, well, this is great. I'll go in. So he's like, can you do push-ups and sit-ups and run a mile and a half? I'm like, absolutely. No problem. Mm -hmm. So I banged that out and the Navy accepted me. And my senior year, like in April, I got orders to go to Pensacola, Florida for officer candidate school, mm -hmm. aviation officer candidate school in Pensacola, Florida. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, there's really no substantial military history in my family. I didn't know that there, there was a, that there were officers and enlisted mm -hmm. in, in the, in the service. I just didn't, I was right. unfamiliar. Yeah. My father was a physician my mom's a nurse and there weren't a lot of military around me when I was growing up. So, mm -hmm. um, I get down there and, uh, to Pensacola and, um, and I remember walking walking around the base there and I had my orders which were that mimeograph stuff with the little edges that you rip off the sides yeah you know yeah, the dot, yeah, yeah, the dot yeah. matrix printer right right 
And it said I was supposed to go to, you know, Nimitz Hall or something yeah. like that. And, uh, and I'm like, do you know, I, I saw this guy and I said, do you know where Nimitz Hall is? And he looked at me and kind of said, yeah, it's right over there. And he kind of laughed because mm-hmm. I was wearing like a T-shirt and flip flops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I walk up to this building and there are these two brass missiles with a chain hanging between the missiles. It right. says, through these doors walks the future of naval avi- aviation. And I went, <laughs> just kind of like that, like, Pfft. You know, yeah, kind of schmaltzy. So I go in there, I walk in the door. They say, um, "Put your um, heels four inches from the bulkhead at a forty at forty five degree angle and stand at attention." And you didn't even know. And and I'm like, okay. And I kind of yeah. do that, and then they start screaming at me, and yeah. that went on for like ten days straight. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so I was at what's, you know, called Officer Kansas School. I was class 2489er, which meant I was the 24th class of 1989 wow. um, to go through Aviation Officer Candidate School. And um, the first 10 days, they, you basically march back and forth to um, the uh, um, hospital. Right. And you're getting this flight physical because out of like 26 guys in my class, 22 of them were either pilots or naval flight officers. There were no other intelligence officers in the Mm-hmm. In, the, in my class. They just mm-hmm. don't have that much need. And um, I went through all the tests, perfect vision, heart was good, I was physically fit. The last test was the, and if you're a man, you know what this is, the turn your head and cough test. Right. <laughs> so I do the turn your head and cough test, and the guy says, hmm, I think you have a hernia. Oh, no. And I said, I'm 22 years old, best shape of my life. I'm like, right. you got to be kidding me. Yeah. So they, they sent me to you know get it checked out, and yep, I had a hernia. So the Navy, in its wisdom, said, um, even though they had surgeons just sitting there at Pensacola to, waiting to do it, they said, uh, you have to go home. We're going to discharge you from the Navy. You go home and get your, your hernia repaired because Uncle Sam's not paying for your hernia repair. Wow. So I was discharged wow. from the Navy. I yeah. go home with my tail between my legs. I told all my, my family and friends that I was going to be a naval officer. Right. And I get home and um, get my hernia, and I call the recruiter. I said, okay, I'm ready, you know, three weeks later. Yeah. And he says, okay, we'll let you know. Um, so, so now you're in line. Now I'm in line. Yeah. Well, the next thing that happens, if you know your history, in the fall of 89, the Berlin Wall came down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and um, basically, we, that we benefited from you know, what we now know as the peace dividend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I kept calling the recruiter. He says, look, buddy, it could be two weeks. It could be two years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm not waiting around. So I started studying for the bar exam. Took the bar exam, mm-hmm. uh, not the bar exam. I took the LSAT, right, and then uh, applied to law school. Was admitted to law school in August of 1990, um, and I decided I'd had enough Virginia, so I went to Cal Western, which is out in San Diego, mm-hmm. and I start law school in the in September, August of 1990, right about the time that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Nice, right. So this is where history intersects with your life, right? Where preparation. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah. I, so I'm in law school, and um, there were lots of yellow ribbons on the doors in San Diego because it's a big Navy town. Yes. And I, was, I assumed the Navy was behind me. I thought, I, there's no way I'm ever going to be in the Navy. Yeah. Well, the and best, you're in San Diego. I'm in San Diego, and yeah. I'm like, look, you know, there's ships. I'm like, wow, this is really cool. That would have been kind of a cool career, but I guess I'll be a lawyer now. Yeah. Well, the, the best professor at my law school was a guy named Bill Lynch, and uh, he just passed away this past year. A great guy. He had been 27 years a Navy JAG mm-hmm. and uh, had negotiated SALT II Treaty when he was a senior JAG officer. And, um, and I went and I talked to him after class one day. I said, you know, I, I really still would like to be in the Navy. You know, tell me about this JAG Corps. And he told me about it. Saw another recruiter and uh, was um, recruited by the Navy and was accepted in the Navy uh, lawyer program. Um, that summer, I was commissioned an ensign. Um, and uh, that's how I got into the JAG Corps. Amazing. It's just amazing how life works. You know, <laughs> yeah. you can always, all the little things that yeah. happen. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was really, it was, it, it was a great experience. I mean, um, just uh, a, a lot of little things that the Navy does right um, that everybody in society, I think, could emulate. And one of them is um, sort of the, you know, the, the, the Harry Truman saying, the buck stops here. Yeah. Um, the commanding officer of any command is responsible for whatever happens 
in that command. Mm-hmm. You know, when a, when a ship runs aground or a submarine gets hit by a merchant vessel, yeah. the, the commanding officer is probably sound asleep. Right. And somebody else was driving the ship. Yeah. But guess who gets fired? Yes. The CO. The yeah. CO. And, and the reason is, is that, you know, I think a very, very hard line that you're responsible for what happens in your command. Mm-hmm. And so accepting responsibility for the things that you do and the mistakes that you make in life, and there's lots of opportunities for that. There uh, sure are. In, you yeah. know, in, in my career and in any career. And, and knowing, uh, you know, just to accept it and move on to the next, um, the next mission is, is something I learned there. So. Mm-hmm. So what other lessons did you uh, learn from the Navy that you think uh, could be valuable in closing this sure. conversation? It's a great story, by the way. Well, bring us, bring us a, sure. a tidbit of wisdom. You know, I think that um, like little, like, so um, little things, um, little things matter. Mm-hmm. When I was... Just as 10 days when I was at officer candidate school, everything had to be a certain way. Yeah. Um, you had to dress a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to put your stuff in your locker a certain way. If you ever mm-hmm. watched the movie if, um, Officer and a Gentleman, mm-hmm. you may remember how his locker lockbox had to be a certain way. Everything is mm-hmm. in order. Mm-hmm. Your belt buckle has to be polished. Your, do you know what a gig line is? No, I don't. That's the line from your shirt, right? Right. That lines up with your zipper. Okay. The gig line is is lined up. I gotcha. There's no threads hanging off of your uniform. Right. <laughs> right. Your po- your your, your yeah. belt's polished. Yeah. Your, your shoes are polished. And and wh- why is that a point of emphasis? And the thinking is is that if 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 you start to train your mind to notice when one little thing is out of order. Mm-hmm. If you're a pilot in a cockpit mm-hmm. and there's all those dials and all yeah. those switches, yeah. you're more likely to spot that thing that's out of order. Right. So I've become a, I wouldn't say I'm a neat freak at all. Yeah. My wife would definitely say that I'm not a neat freak. Right. <laughs> but when I, when I sit down at my desk, there can't be a lot of clutter on it. Right. Because I need to be able to like feel like I'm going to be able to tell mm-hmm. if something's out of order. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. And it's really important. I agree with it completely. Fantastic. Doug, thanks for sharing that with us. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back in three with one or two more stories from Doug Kay. So we're back with Doug Kay. So Doug, thanks again for coming in. I'm really enjoying uh, hearing your story. And it's it's really amazing. And, And we were just talking during the break. You know, when 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 life happens, and you just kind of go with the flow, you know, the story you just told about how you became a JAG officer, you know, if you had not had your hernia and if you were not discharged, you told me during the break, you would have never been an attorney. And all this stuff that's happened in your life has happened because you got your law degree. So it's really, it's really amazing. And I think it's a common thread with, with a lot of successful people is they, they, they follow the opportunities that present themselves in front of them. You know, I always say never miss a meeting. I've got stories about that, but uh, it's really amazing to uh, to hear your story. So thanks for sharing that. So let's talk about what you're doing now, your day job. So uh, you're an attorney mm-hmm. and you represent all kinds of uh, different things. And that's really interesting. Uh, I think maybe most folks out there may not realize how interesting it is. But, you, you know, you take a set of facts like you brought up earlier, the landlord, the tenant. But tell us what some of your favorite what are what are some of your favorite ideal uh, situations to be involved with now? What kind of clients do you like to represent? What's the what's the stuff that gets you excited? So uh, anymore, what I, what I really enjoy is, is finding clients um, who want an attorney who can help them with sort of all of their legal problems. Um, it, so I look for um, a CEO of a company who um, uh, might be, he might do government contracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and I might meet him because he's had a, having a conflict that takes him to court. Right. 
when that court matter is over with my with Offit Kerman, my new firm, uh, well, new as of eight years ago, right? <laughs> as new as it used to be. It's all relative, yeah. Yeah, um, what I like to be able to do is introduce him to all the other attorneys in the firm who can help that client. Right. And I like to be the, the, the point person for those for those meetings. I like to learn about what my colleagues are are, are um, helping my, my clients with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, and I like to try to solve those problems too. In other words, try to be full, a full service attorney because um, I like the relationships. That's right. what I really enjoy. I enjoy right. having a g- good relationships with people um, and being there when they have legal problems that they need solved. Mm-hmm. So, so what are you, uh, what did your day look like? So when mm-hmm. you come to work every day, what do you, uh, what do you get into? Cause so, you, so cause my day, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. yeah. So, so my day is sort of um, divided in, uh, right now, sadly, probably thirds. <laughs> okay. Nah, really half. Um, as an attorney, I represent people who are typically have court cases or mm-hmm. involved in some kind of a conflict. Okay. There's almost always a contract involved. Right. That's what brings the two sides together. Right. Right. And so the sides are established by some kind of an agreement. Maybe it doesn't rise to the level of a contract, which is a legal thing. Yeah. Um, but there's always two people that have been brought together to like try to do something together. Yeah. And it's not working out. Yes. And there's significant conflict. Yes. And it's taken them to court and there are the, the typically the, the, the temperature is very high. Uh-huh. And, um, and, and my job is to try to get the best result possible for my client. Um, so that's like half of what I do. Okay. Um, the other half of what I do now is I'm a um, department chair in my law firm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the firm has, um, and over the last course of like the last four years, I've gotten more and more heavily involved in the management of the lawyers in the firm. Right. There are 242 lawyers in Offit Kerman presently. Wow. And I, um, I, I'm a department chair for four practice groups, mm-hmm. and the four practice groups have a total of probably like 80 lawyers. Wow! And so my job, one of my jobs, is to sort of try to lead and manage those practice group leaders to make sure that that certain things are being done by the various practice groups. Right. We worry about things like quality. Yeah. We worry about things like workflow. Mm-hmm. Um, we worry about things like client service, mm-hmm. um, and um, we worry about legal education. We worry about um, we worry about billing and making mm-hmm. sure that 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 the invoices go out, you know, at a certain amount of time. We try to keep the lights on mm-hmm. for the lawyers, and um, so that the lawyers can provide the service to the clients. So I spend about half my time on management, half my time on legal work that I've described, and then there's also I'm the I think I told you, we talked about earlier in the segment, I'm right. on the civilian review panel. Yes. I'm on the board of directors from my bar association. Yes. I'm active in the state bar. Um, I'm on a task force right now that's looking at um, practice group management issues for lawyers mm-hmm. at the state bar level. Um, and um, I'm done coaching because uh, my son plays baseball instead of basketball, and I don't know baseball. Yeah. So, <laughs> so as it happens. Yeah. But so, um, you know, um, those are the things that, that keep me busy. So if, when I come in, uh, they circle all the way around and answer right. your question directly. It depends. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So so I guess I, for, for the for the folks listening, I, I think that we have a, we have a pretty big business audience. What is um, your advice to, to, to folks to avoid uh, getting into conflicts? I mean, maybe that's a good place to uh, sure. chat a little, and then we'll talk about what happens when you get into a conflict, right? Right. So I represent a lot of small business owners, um, and the, the people that I represent typically don't have a general counsel. Mm-hmm. Um, I've represented publicly traded companies that have mm-hmm. several lawyers, right? Um, and that's a different sort of a client engagement. My bread and butter are people who are small business owners, right? And small business owners, I think, are fearful of um, paying a lot of attorney fees, right? For uh, to engage an attorney to advise them, mm-hmm. and. Where I think an attorney could be most beneficial to business people 
is when the parties, when the business people are starting right. the relationship. I told you that I deal with an agreement and yes. there's two sides and there's high temperatures. Right. A lot of that can be avoided if um, if you had good legal advice up front. Yes. And you got your deal terms, the critical deal terms in writing. Right. In simple English so that everybody knows what each person is, what, what each person's obligations are for the agreement moving do you, forward. Do you normally lay out an exit strategy when you do something like that? Or are you just laying out kind of the ground rules for the partnership? Um, well, it, it depends on, on the nature of the partnership and mm -hmm. what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and I'll use the word partnership. I'm using air quotes. You can't right, see right. me because it's a podcast. Right. I'm using air quotes because <laughs> partnership has very exactly. legal terms. But exactly. You know, in terms of an agreement between people moving forward, um, it depends on how long they're going to be in business together. But yeah, yeah to, if, if I think that if two people go into business together, they should know what they're trying to do, who's doing what, what mm -hmm. in other words, what are the management responsibilities, and if we disagree, mm -hmm. how do we break this thing up right. without a lot of risk, a lot of high temperature? Right. What are the terms of the buyout? Right. You know, who can buy whom out on what terms if if they the parties decide they want to go their separate ways. Right. And that I think that's what you mean by exit strategy. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think generally speaking, I think most folks probably don't know this, but it's probably easier to get divorced than it is to terminate a business arrangement between a group of people. I mean, it can get uh, very complicated. You have you know, loans together and you have uh, yeah. leases together, it can get, uh, it can get really dicey. Yeah. And if you have, most people will set up some sort of a corporate structure yeah. because they're, they know enough to know that you want that shield from personal liability that mm -hmm. the corporate structure provides. Right. Right. But now once you have the corporate structure, um, you, it, unless it's a 50-50 split, which creates its own set of problems. Right. If somebody's the majority shareholder, um, they have the ability to control all the action mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. detriment of the minority shareholder or right. shareholders. 51%. That's all yeah. it takes. Yeah. And, and I've seen, I've done, I've done a lot around shareholder disputes. Mm -hmm. um, I've done a lot, um, just a lot with that. And, and I've represented people who are the majority. Yeah. And I've represented people that are the minority. Yeah. And um, I don't get to pick which one comes in my door, like we talked about earlier. Right, right, right. I just take whatever comes in. Yeah. Um, but you have a substantial advantage if you're in the majority. Right. Which should tell you that if you're going to be in the minority, it doesn't mean you shouldn't go into business, but you want to know how you're going to exit. Mm -hmm. It's even more critical for the minority shareholder to have an exit plan mm -hmm. that's in writing, that mm -hmm. is enforceable. Right. Um, otherwise, you are um, you own shares in a company that you're pouring all of your energy into. Right. And there's no market for those shares. Right. And you potentially have liability. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you have no control over the direction of the organization. There's yeah. That, so it's a, that pretty, too. it's a pretty dicey situation to be in. It's a very dicey situation. So yeah. the, 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 the number one thing, you, you know, going back to your first question. Yeah. What, what do you what would you tell people? I would say talk to a lawyer at the beginning when it's when things are good right with your partner right don't exactly. don't wait until things are really crummy yes to call the lawyer yeah. obviously i usually get people call me when things are crummy so yeah. don't hesitate to call me then i'm my, i'll answer your phone sure <laughs> <laughs> but you know if you're looking yeah. for good business advice it's it's get the advice of a lawyer early right. and it doesn't have to be expensive i was just going to say it doesn't that. have to be no, complicated I, I totally agree with you it, yeah. it can be it can be you know an hour long conversation over a cup yeah. of coffee or or an adult beverage right. and i can set you on your way yeah um, but that would be my advice. Yeah, that, yeah, that's good advice. And I and I'll I will I will second that again. It does not have to be expensive. I think if you have uh, someone like you who understands business and understands the law, you can get to the right uh, answer very quickly, or you get to the right attorney in your firm who can get to the answer very quickly. So you, you, you're you're absolutely right. So what what are your so now you're a golfer so uh, let's talk about uh, golf a little bit so uh, how often do you, you're you're actually on the board at the uh, Fairfax Country Club I don't know where you have time for all this stuff <laughs> I mean 
I, I, I can barely be a dad and uh, run my organization and uh, spend a little time on my farm and I'm overloaded. So clearly you have a lot of bandwidth. You're one of those guys that uh, I call uh, high, high bandwidth uh, leaders in our, in our community. But you're, you're on the board of the country club. So how often do you get to play golf? It, you know, it depends on what's going on at work. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I try to carve out uh, Sunday mornings. Okay. Um, and I try to play every Sunday morning with, with some friends. Nice. And if I can sneak in, you know, nine holes with my 14-year-old son in the evening, right. that's that, all the better. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I, do, I do love golf. It's yeah. True. So where did that passion come from? So I, I grew up playing it. Um, my dad uh, it was an avid golfer growing up, mm -hmm. and, he, and I didn't really like it right. when I was a kid. Um, I played it. It's a painful really, game. It is. Yeah. It is um, very painful. And I didn't really like it until I got you know, a little bit later in life, in my 20s. Mm -hmm. and, and what I tell people is the, the best thing and the worst thing about golf is that it takes like four hours to play. Right. Right. Now, how much business? Do you ever do business on the golf course? Or have you ever done? Uh, you know, you I know, guess it, there's... It, it comes up. Yeah. Um, I, I think um, that I, I definitely have gotten... You know, I've met clients uh, mm -hmm. on the golf course. Um, I've taken clients to the golf course. Clients have taken me to the golf course. Um, it's a great way. Like I said um, earlier, um, I enjoy having good relationships with my clients. Right. I find that that's so much more pleasant. There are some clients where I have, I'm challenged to have any relationship, and those mm -hmm. are the cases that I worry about the most. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if, if I can play around a golf with a client, mm -hmm. you know, even if we only talk about the, the case for 15 minutes, right. Um, you know, w there may be some insight gained. Yeah. And, and the most important thing is um, just for a lot of what I spend my time doing is pointing out um, the problems with the positions that my clients are taking in a particular piece of litigation. Mm -hmm. Those are delicate conversations. Um, if, if, but, but they're also the most important. I mean, if I sit there and I just tell my clients what they want to hear mm -hmm. every time, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. I'm not doing them any kind of, any kind so of So can you give us an example? Um, I, I probably could, um, if I, if I think about it, but you know, it, it's, um, every day I'm, I'm, I have to push back with a client where a client wants to press, I mean, here's a conversation I had this morning. Client right. wants to um, seek attorney's fees um, against the opposing party in a discovery dispute. Mm -hmm. And and I have to sort of gently push them back because they're also taking aggressive positions. And, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, you know. Right, the ne right, the right. next we may, we may lose the next one. Right. And be looking at the same... The, you know, the same sort of advocacy on the other side. Right, right. And so if I have a good relationship with my client, um, the hope is, is that they'll be more likely to trust me right. when I tell them that I know we could do this, Yeah. but it's my advice that we don't do that. Right. I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, fantastic. I, I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated. What, you know, it's, it, go, it all goes back to policies and procedures and rules, you know. And, you know, when you're a lawyer, you're dealing with the rules of our society, you know. And, and they're, they're complex and you interject humans. And it's a fascinating uh, topic uh, for me always. So, so Doug... In closing out today, is there anything you want to uh, mention about your firm, about your career? You know, do you want to do, you know, I, I think we, we, people can tell by listening, you know what you're doing. And I can tell folks, you know what you're doing. You're great to work with. Um, you're, you're, you're personable. You're a great listener. Uh, but is there anything you want to add to what we've talked about today before we close out? Um, I, I think the one thing that I would add or that I would mention is that um, uh, my example in life was always my father, who is a very, very kind and decent man. Mm -hmm. And I pride myself on being the same way. Mm -hmm. um, but what I would, and sometimes clients come along and they really want their lawyer to be 
very disagreeable, mm -hmm. to be very apparently aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not my style. It doesn't work for me. Right. Um, but what I would say is what you want in a lawyer is not necessarily that. That may work for some people. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, you want the attorney with the experience and the confidence that they can go to court. In my case, I'm a litigator. Right. At right. the end of the day, when all, when all of the um, negotiating is over right. and we've narrowed the issues as much as we can, you want somebody who can go into court and can win for you. Mm -hmm. And the advantage that I bring to the table there is just 25 years of experience of trying cases. Mm -hmm. And it started, you know, in, in the Navy, you know, very early. Uh, I, you know, from there I was a prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And most of my work since 1996, when I got out of the Navy, has been in Fairfax County. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I protect very carefully my reputation with the judges mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. that county to be sure that they know that when I bring a case before them and I advocate for a client mm -hmm. that I'm not full of BS right that they're that they'll sit forward and they'll listen yeah um, and and so you know the point is is that although I'm outwardly nice I'm inwardly incredibly competitive mm-hmm and um, and I want to win, mm -hmm. and I want to win for you, right? As a as a client, fantastic, Doug. Thanks for coming in. Really enjoyed uh, the chat today. It's great to get to know you. We look forward to having you back, and there's uh, many more conversations uh, on the horizon for us. Thanks, Doug. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. So this wraps up another episode of the Go With John Show. Thanks for listening and go out there and build something extraordinary.